Let's take our Bibles at this time and turn to Psalm 56. This we've been considering the Psalms this summer in our summer series on the Psalms for several years. And we're up to Psalm 56. This will be the last of the Psalms that we'll consider uh, in this series for this summer. Psalm 56 has one of those subheadings that helps us to be reminded of the setting, very important, to the chief musician set to the silent dove in distant lands. A miktam, or song of instruction, or golden psalm of David when the Philistines captured him in Gath. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day. For there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what can flesh do to me. All day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together, they hide, they mark my steps when they lie in wait for my life. Shall they escape by iniquity? In anger, cast down the peoples, O God. You number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, Then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. In God, I will praise his word. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? Thus far we read the word of God, Psalm 56. May God speak to us and speak now in the preaching of the word. The best of men are men at best. That's true. And it's important that we recognize that. The best of men are men at best. So it is with David, man after God's own heart. What a man. God's anointed one. God's king, God's chosen king over Saul, who had been chosen to be a king, according to the other nations, kings, David's chosen of God to be a king after God's own heart, to rule according to his law, to establish the people of God as a theocracy, a kingdom that's ruled by the word of God, in the name of God, to the glory of God. Israel, entrusted to David. But at this time, as we've been seeing in several of the Psalms, David is in his humiliation. He's anointed by Samuel with the oil. Uh, 
to take the place of Saul, the rebellious king. But he's being hounded by Saul, isn't he? And for several years, Saul is going after him. Saul is in the eminence, and David is is nothing. He's wandering in the wilderness with a ragtag bag of um, a band of men. And so he is sometimes in despair, and he wonders how long it will be before this reality of his anointing takes place in a grander way than this, this humiliation of the king of Israel. In fact, at this time, according to the subheading of the psalm, and the psalm itself brings this out, David shows himself to be compromised because in fleeing from Saul, he's fled to a place outside of the land of promise to Gath of the Philistines. And we read there in 1 Samuel 21, I believe, that's when David pretended he was a madman. He was so afraid for his life that he pretended insanity. And this David, who was feared among the Philistines for slaying thousands, slaying Goliath of Gath, is one who turns out to be a shameful person in their sight, and he gets away, but this was not to the glory of God. And so this psalm reflects this man who is, though he is the best of men, is yet a man and a sinful man. And there are some striking themes in this psalm uh, on which I would have us pick up as we hear this word of God, the entire psalm. And the themes, for example, of fear. David fears for his life. He fears what men do. He fears uh, the, the prospects of his being a king or of his being alive at the end of the day. And there's, there's also this great fear, which is a comfort to us, of uh, this great theme of faith. So fear and faith, David's showing it right here, an honest man, an honest man, inspired by God for you today, beloved, because I know there's lots of fears And sometimes, even when we don't want to admit it, nevertheless, it's still true. We have lots of fears and anxieties for our children, for our marriages, for our church, for our work, all these things, for our health, lots of fears. These can be like so many foxes in the vineyard destroying the crop. May God bless us so that as we hear of David's fearing, we're come to faith, stronger faith, what you cannot see, and in whom you know as the God whose spirit, and yet who's come in the flesh, Jesus Christ. So from fear to faith, let us rise. Consider, first of all, the, the fears of David, and they're of the worst sort. We'll be talking about that. Fears of the worst sort. And secondly, this is faith in God Most High, And then, finally, that there is a following of David as he vows at the end to be a child of God and to walk before the face of God, Koram Deo. And so we're going to see this also in light of the New Testament, which seems to allude to this in John chapter 8, more on that presently. But about these fears, about these fears, as we saw last time, considering Psalm 55 and the burdens that... uh, David would cast upon the Lord, and we should. 
We also have fears. And they're what may be a summary word for all of the effects of burdens in life. They give us to fear, to be afraid, to be anxious, to wonder about our health, our, our sanity, uh, the future, our bank account, and all of these little things that needle at us, the things that um, we see that provoke an ungodly sort of reaction. Because certainly it's ungodly for us as believers to react to what we see as if that's all there is. Because believing, isn't this true, is reacting to what you see, you don't see. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We walk by faith and not by sight. Well, David, for a while, was walking by sight, as we shall see. But again, this, as we saw last time, doesn't seem to fit the child of God's life. We saw last time, how can there be burdens when Christ is born our burden? How can there be fears when Jehovah's our life and our light? How can we fear anything? And when we say with the psalmist in Psalm 27, Jehovah's my light, whom shall I fear? And because the reality is, as David expresses here in a a moment of faith, this I know, God is for me. There's a Romans 8 allusion here in Psalm 56 and verse 9. Now this is why we come to church, beloved, because God is for us. And this is why we preach with great gratitude that wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ, because in Christ, our Savior, God shows himself to be for us, for us. And that is, there's no condemnation for sinners who know that, who are in that communion of God by faith and in the Holy Ghost. God is for us. He's on our behalf. He's on our side, not just rooting, go, 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 as if he's for us as we're for ourselves. No. The gospel is God is for us in our place. He's the one on the track. He's the one running the race set before him in Jesus. Come so that he is incarnate, the incarnate God, and he runs the race all the way of atonement dies for us, showing that God is for us, who are naturally not for him. It's the gospel of grace for sinners, and this is what we preach here, it's sovereign grace. That's it. Basically, you've learned the faith and the faith of our fathers. We call it the Reformed faith, the Presbyterian faith. God saves sinners. When people confess their faith here, that's what they're saying. It's the substance of it. God saves sinners, God saves me. That's it. That's all we have to say. Beloved, if you think that's not much and we should add to it, you have another thing coming to you because this is what the Bible says all the time. This is the thing that matters. This is what you want the preacher to say. God saves sinners. Now, there's lots of aspects to that, as we'll see presently. But David knew that, too. And again, this, is, this reflects a, a particular way of looking at the Bible. Old Testament? How could David know thousands of years before Christ or so that God was for him really in, in Jesus? 
He didn't know Jesus. Ah, but he did. Because David, the man after God's own heart, knew the truth of God. And the truth of God is always Jesus Christ. God, who spoke at various times in diverse ways, Hebrews chapter 1, has spoken in these last days by his Son. But he spoke in Jesus the same word that he was always saying. When he said in the beginning, there was God by Jesus, his Son, creating all things by Jesus and for Jesus, that Jesus might come. All the world was created to be a stage for Jesus to come into, the main actor, as it were, the main one. And so everything that Israel was learning by picture and prophecy and promise, in an Old Testament sort of way, in a way where God was the master of like kindergartners, teaching things on the wall of realities that were to come and that were behind the wall and behind the pictures, everything was to point to Jesus. As Jesus would say to the Pharisees, you think you have eternal life in the scriptures. Well, search them, because these are they, John 7, I believe, that testify of me. All of the Bible, speaking of Jesus, and the sin of the, of the Jews at that time was to miss it. To miss Jesus? And for us to miss Jesus as we read and lead in devotions our families in the discussion of Jeremiah, to miss Jesus there, that's shameful. Well, David knew Jesus, and he knew him. And he knew and could testify that God is for me because of Messiah, because of the one who will come after me and who will build David's kingdom forever. David knew that. And yet, there's still fears. That's the paradox, maybe, of Christianity, a stumbling block for many. As we saw last time, the burdens are lifted from the child of God, the burden of sin and guilt, and yet there's still burdens. How can that be? And many walk away from the faith when they find that out. They come to, come to the church, maybe for a Sunday, and they've been strolling in the park, and now they think coming into the church is going to be a stroll in the park. But there's burdens. And now we read in Psalm 56, there's fears. There's things that get at us. There's things that, that confuse us. Medical things and things of society and things of chaos and things that get to everybody and cause everybody to fear and then many people to panic and make policies that are just rooted in the fear of death and so on. Fears. But the fears that David is, is especially mindful of have to do with what men do to him. Be merciful to me, O God, first words, for man would swallow me up. Man would. He's looking at man. Man is going to eat him up, swallow him up, digest him. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. All day. It's relentless. My enemies would hound me all day, but there are many who fight against me almost high, and so on. This is a psalm in which David expresses his fear, his being terrorized by people mightier than he, people mightier than he and Saul, and there are thousands of armies who were pursuing David because Saul saw David as a, a threat. And now he's in Gath. Now he's in Gath. 
And there he meets an enemy that's greater than the Goliath he slew, who was of Gath. It's striking. This is the second time we read of David and Gath, or David and Gath mentioned together. The first one, he met Goliath, and remember, he chopped off his head, and he, he threw the stones and killed him. Now he's in Gath, and he's feigning insanity. That's a sad thing. When I preach through David's life and so on, it's one of the saddest parts of his history. David feigns insanity, and he's out of his mind. And as if, you know, as, as people today, when they try to get off of the crimes they've committed, they, they plead insanity and they're given a lesser term. Well, David was pleading insanity, faking insanity. Maybe he was really out of his mind. And in fact, beloved, let's, let's deal with this. Let's really deal with this. David is out of his mind, out of his right mind at this time. Let's not let our... The, the type of Jesus here off the hook, this man after God's own heart off the hook, he's compromised. And the reason being is that he's left the promised land. He's left the place where God dwells with his people. He's gone out like Abraham did of old and Isaac when they were afraid of the famine and so on. They left and they ended up compromising more. This is David. In his fear of men and what they could do, and it's understandable, I'd be afraid too, shaking in my boots, but in his fear, he went so far as to leave God. That's his problem. In fact, when David comes here, he meets with an enemy worse than Goliath, taller, stronger than Goliath. You know who that enemy is? It's not Achish, the king of Gath. It's himself. David meets the monster of self. David here yields to that old man of sin, the flesh, the unbeliever in a man. That's what he's doing here. It's terrible. And when he's crying out here, yes, that's the beginning of faith and so on, but that he's here in this place, groveling and spitting out of his mouth and along his beard before Achish, the heathen king, and not giving glory to God and trusting in him to be at his right hand, this is compromise. So he's dealing with the enemy of his own sin. And I want to remind us of that by application. The fear that David has or the result of his fear that he's experiencing, of his own sin, isn't that something that we find ourselves in quite a lot? It's not just that men are against us, unbelievers at work or play at school, professors maybe. It's that we ourselves can be so against us, and this self it leads us to the wrong places, doesn't it? So we find our comfort in a bottle, a southern comfort. We find it in a person. We find it in our rules, whereby we think we can keep ourselves safe. We find it in whatever, anything but God. God's not enough. God's word, what he says, 
We don't believe as we should. Think of that. God's word in the church. We're fearful that that's not going to be enough maybe to build the church. Who's going to believe our report when we just tell them God saves sinners? That's the gospel. Who's going to believe that when the gospel we preach is not the gospel of Ben Franklin, God helps those who help themselves? Who's going to believe it's just God? It's just Jesus. It's just the blood. Who's going to believe when there's an offense to the gospel and people go and leave? Ah, because we didn't say it the right way. We didn't give credit enough to man. So we go somewhere else. And churches can do this too. Ministers and seminarians, they invent a new way. Because we're afraid that God's word isn't enough. We've got to spice it up. We need a song and dance on the pulpit. Need something. Something to connect to my life, my marriage, my single life, my, my plight. I've had a broken home. Life's been rough. I need something. Besides what we call the sufficiency of the gospel, the sufficiency of grace, this old word, which builds this old house, the church. We need something else. Always something more. Something new. Because we're afraid. We're anxious. We're, we want to be accepted. Isn't that true? We want to be accepted. And it shouldn't be that everybody is against us. And maybe even in Christendom, most Christians are looking aside at us and saying, what are you doing? You're not going to make an impact on society with just that. So we fear, and fear puts us in the wrong place. And we'll grovel before the world and to pander to the world. And spit will go down our mouths and down our beards. And the world itself will think we're insane. That's a shameful thing, you know. The world sees hypocrisy. The ungodly, they know when the Christians have come down to their level. They know when we're fighting in the same ring as they are to have a movement called Christ's movement, politically oriented. They know that because they've heard and they're objective enough to believe, even though they don't believe it, or to regard Christianity as teaching something that's not of this world. See, David was wanting a thing of this world he didn't get the humiliation that he was going through. He wasn't getting the cross. The hard thing of Christianity that God saves sinners by the humble man after his own heart, Jesus. And so he feared for his life even while he was leaving his life in the land of the living, the promised land fellowship of God. That's what we do. And what that does is put a kind of fear of God in us that's not the reverence sort, but it's the terrorized sort. When we're out of sorts with God, we know something of his wrath, don't we? We do. God is angry with sinners, even us, when we sin. 
and he's angry with us, especially when we have, as rebellious and unbelieving children, not trusted in him. We said, we need another father who is more perfect than you are. We need another home than the church that's got to be more perfect than this one. And on and on the excuses go. God is angry with that. He's not pleased with us. He doesn't disown us. God is our father. But we disown him. We run from him. We're afraid of him in the worst way. And and then, you see, we, we feel the weight of the law. You shall have no other gods before me. When you run away from God, you're making yourself God or Gath God or the bathhouse God or the bar God or your cronies God. Anything or anyone besides God and besides the gospel. So, basically, it's like we commit adultery. Because God is a jealous God. He wants all our attention. We are the bride of Christ and so on. And we should be devoted to him who is the only Savior, the only Lord. And, and there we go after other gods thinking the the embrace of this world is much more satisfying and so that we can get a life in addition to the one that we have on Sunday. I kind of like that adulterous woman. Remember John 8? That's the New Testament passage that quotes or seems to allude to one of the verses here. We'll talk about that. Remember that woman caught in adultery in the very act, John 8? The Pharisees came to Jesus and said, so we should stone her, shouldn't we? The Old Testament law called for this. Called for this. You don't really read much of the woman. But she was afraid because she'd been caught by God. The law had caught up to her. And the lawyers... They were bringing the law. She had no way of hoping that she'd be delivered and would not be stoned and that Jesus would not also confirm what the law said. She needed to know something of grace, and she would. And so do we. So, beloved, this is my second point, and this is how, this is how We escape from Gath, from ourselves, from all the evil men from the world. Here's how God comes to Gath. That's how. God comes to you. God works in your heart when you're the prodigal son. And he works in your heart so that you come to your senses. That's what the prodigal son did. And he comes to you and he reminds you that he's still with you. Nothing conditional on that. God was with David in Gath. He withdrew from David. But God who's for us is always for us. Or he's not faithful to his own promise. To his own son who died to give abundant life, eternal life, and never to take it away from us. So that's the first thing, and that's how fear, abject terror of 
people and of things and of ourselves and of God turns to faith once again. And this is for you, dear ones. If you're fearing and fear has got you and it's become your God even, if I'm fearing, believe that God has not given up. That's what faith does now. Faith rises from the fear, from the fray, from the fracas to our friend, God. Faith goes back to the word. Notice three times here. In God I will praise his word. In God have I put my trust. All day long they're twisting my words and so on. But in God, I will praise his word. So, verse 4, in God, I will praise his word. In the Lord, Jehovah, I will praise his word. In God, I've put my trust and so on. There's a lingering of David on the word three times here. And this shows how he's coming back and how he has come back to pray for mercy to this God because he has the word. He had the world. The world had him. Now he's reminded of the word. And there's only one letter difference, children, between world and word. But there's a world of difference between what they can provide. You get an L with the world. You get hell with the world, maybe. But with the word of God, is life. Spoken. Spoken through David. Spoken again in these latter days in Jesus Christ. In God, I will praise his word, Jesus. In God, I know my Savior. I will not fear. He's my light. He's my life. I will not fear. In God, I believe beyond what is seen. I believe beyond all the tough stuff of life, which, don't you know, is often the most ordinary things. Raising kids, changing diapers, going to school and changing your major nine times, and then realizing that a degree in dance or whatever, gender studies, isn't going to get you a dollar. Life's in the hard things, the ordinary things. And that's the beauty of the gospel. God came into the ordinary world, the ordinary life, the existence of mere men who at their best are but men at best and then sinful. That's our God. That's what the Word says. And when we're, see, trying to get out of Gath, get out of the world, get out of the fringe of the promised land. Stop walking the fence. One foot in the kingdom, one foot in the world, and happier with that longer foot that's in the world. You realize the word really is true, and it really abides, and it really connects, and it really saves, and it's really enough. Jesus. Jesus. And salvation in him. And this God... David knew was for him is still for me. And that means everything. 
No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. If God be for me, Gath can't be against me. Achish can't be against me. Satan can't be against me. I can't be against me. That is, effectively, to undo what God, who is for me, does. There are no equals to God. And God is a majority all the time. Striking when the enemies would hound David all the day in verse 2. And he says, there's many who fight against me. He pleads to the Most High. You see, David knows that the higher ground is where you win the battle. God, Most High, is the God of battles, the Lord God of battles. And because of the battle and the blood and the forsakenness of the Son on the cross and the canceling of the guilt and the debt, we triumph over all our enemies and all our fears. We do. Praise God. Lots more that could be said about faith here. I've said that with hesitancy, I preach the Psalms and usually just like one theme or verse from the Psalm because there's so much here. Something that we could dwell on and be very comforting. Verse 8, you number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? Don't you love that? God empathizes with us. That's what that says. He sheds tears, as it were, or he holds our tears. And it's as he's shedding them, as if he is for us, and he's empathetic, sympathetic. He is this God in Christ, the empathetic high priest. You know that? Now, beloved, not to speculate, but maybe to get us to think. This has helped me. Maybe. To understand John 8 <coughs> a little better. And that woman caught in adultery and trembling in her boots before the law and the lawyers. She should be stoned. God's law said she should be stoned. She's caught in the midst of adultery. She's broken covenant with her husband and so on. And again, Jesus comes and he rises himself up when all of those Pharisees left because none could convict her uh, of sin and would. And he says to her, verse uh, 10, Woman, where are those accusers of you? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see what Jesus reminded her of? God who's for us. Neither do I condemn it. No one condemned you. They can't. Nor do I. Why? She was a child of God. Not a child of a legalistic system that the Pharisees had invented as if the law was given and no mercy was there at all, but a child of God. And so Jesus speaks to her, I do not condemn you, because God doesn't. Because I'm God with you, go and sin no more. That's what Jesus is saying to that terrible compromise of a woman. And what Jesus said 
And God said in his word to David, the terrible compromise, the spiritual adulterer who left the fellowship of God in Gath. What Jesus says then to the woman is even more appropriate to the text. He says to her, he spoke to the disciples, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Could very well be that this is an allusion to our psalm, Psalm 56 at the end, where Jesus or David vows <coughs> that he will walk before God in the light of the living. The word of God is that Jesus is the light of the world, the living one. And so it comes full circle. The woman condemned is led with the disciples to the light of the world, the living God before whom we live, and David anticipated that. You are the God before whom I made my vows. I will render praises to you. You've delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of the living? This is David's conclusion. He's had this fear. He's been lifted up to faith. He's no longer insane. He's in his right mind. It's the mind of Christ. It's the mind of the one who knows, yes, God is really for me. And now, because of that, I'm going to be for him. He's been for me. He will be for me. I will be for him. I will vow. The vows that I made in my distress are upon me. They are obliging me to be his. When we confess our faith, same thing. As we are the baptized ones, we ought to be saying the same thing. I am vowing, not just my parents, vowing to be God's, a good son, a good daughter, a good sister, a good brother, a good husband, a good wife, a good minister. Yes, it's possible. Good people. God's believing people. Alive. Alive. You know, one of the burdens we have at Calvin College, where we're starting up our ministry there, uh, the Bible study, seemed to go well last Friday. Don't know if they were coming for pizza or the word. We'll see. But one of the burdens there is to lead those young people, many of whom are not so grounded, to lead them to what is their true life, their significance. Everybody wants to know how significant am I, what's the purpose, and so on. Some people lose it along the way. They've been hurt. Who am I, they say. Who am I? I'm nothing, not wanted. Who am I? Maybe I'll change my sex, maybe this or that. Take my life. Oh, to teach the people of God's good pleasure. There's life in him. And that's beautiful. And that's known because you walk in the light of life. So, beloved, leave you with that. Walk in the light of life. Don't go into the darkness. Use the means of life and light in the church of Christ. Be often with one another 
share with one another burdens, fears, but lead each other to the Savior who is our light and our life. He is God for us. Are we God's people for him? Amen. Father, we thank you for the word, and we pray that you would bless the offerings of our lips and our ears, and may each one here be resolved to serve you and to be faithful to you. And when life is rough, when your ways are so high, we we can hardly understand them. Help us, Lord, to believe. And Lord, we pray, forgive us when we're of little faith, even nigh unto insanity. Have mercy, Father, that we may have the mind of Christ, who did the impossible things, being in the form of God and equal to God, thought it not robbery, to be a servant, to be a servant of sinners and to die for them, to be God for sinners in the flesh. Thanks, Lord, for this truth, this word, that you are for us forever. In Jesus' name, amen.